While the IPO window feels closed for so many, what we're still seeing are interesting mergers, acquisitions, and strategic exits, many of which create the scenario of leaders at the helm of new teams. And so for this week's Billion Dollar Byte, I'm bringing a question I'm awfully being asked a lot, guys. How do leaders make maximum impact in their first 90 days? A concept from one of my favorite books of all time by Michael Watkins, where he brilliantly illustrates the fact that the first 90 days present a unique window for leaders to establish their vision, build influence, and actually set the foundation to make things happen. It's a period that demands precision, clarity, swift action, and a ton of political savvy. I couldn't think of a better episode to reflect on to bring home this point than that of Tiwa York in Asia, a visionary leader who has made waves in the e-commerce industry like no other. Tiwa was handpicked by industry giants Naspers and Tencent to revolutionize their e-commerce portfolio in Thailand. And boy, did he deliver in the first 90 days and more. Under his guidance, Tiwa spearheaded the birth of Kaidi, Thailand's largest C2C marketplace. With over 30 million users, Kaidi had become the go-to platform for Thais looking to buy and sell a staggering 10 million products every year. At its peak, from automotive to property, the platform boasted an impressive 250 categories, providing a thriving marketplace for everyone. But you know, what makes Tiwa's story truly captivating is the unconventional approach he took to transform his teams and bridge cultures, East and West. Tiwa did not settle for the typical CEO title. In fact, he chose to be known as the head coach, leading his teams with unwavering passion and determination. So buckle up as we pick up on Tiwa's journey and perhaps most importantly, how he incentivized his startup teams to unleash their full potential in the first 90 days and more and how you can do that too. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Billion Dollar Moves with me, Sarah Chen Spellings. And to give you an idea of what culture I walked into, I had a team of 65 people within a large organization that had been around for 20 years. So it was not a small business, you know, I mean, of course, you know, you say, yeah, we're only doing eight to $10 million, but it's still not a small business, right? It's not a, you know, mom and pop shop where there are a couple of folks that you have to address. You've got yeah. teams here, you've got different goals. Talk to us about how you navigated this with, with such intricacies to manage. So there, there's a mad journey and I can tell you what, what the goal was. The goal and the journey to get there are two different things. So we set out, when I when I took over the business and I set out to try to change the culture and prove to my friends and colleagues that you could bring a bit of Silicon Valley into Thailand and into Asia and use these, these concepts of agile and openness and transparency in a culture and really bring empowerment to the team. Well, that was the goal. Right. But one of the ways to do that was how do you create openness? So the, the, the big challenge in Asia is that we are, as Asians um, and being half Asian, that we're taught like, keep, keep in your lane, don't rock the boat. Right. This is what you're supposed to do. And by the way, don't make mistakes. Oh, don't do that. that that's a mistake. Oh, that, that, that's going to hurt you, child. Or no, that's wrong. Don't do that. So we're kind of as a very stereotype, taught to be in your lane. So how do you create an openness inside your organization that people are willing to express themselves? The, the thing in Thailand, and it's, it's true across Asia, particularly East Asia, skill sets there, creativity is there, know-how is there, willingness is there. The problem is they're not, they won't express it. So the team won't express these things and they won't bring it forward unless specifically asked. So they won't tell you, oh, we have to do it this way. They will sit there and go, 
okay, boss, we can do it your way. Unless you ask me, I'm not going to tell you. So the thing was, how do you create an openness where the team feels that they can express themselves safely? They're not going to get shut down. Because in Thai culture and Asian culture is deference to the senior. Oh, well, it's not my place to do that. I'm, I, it's not my role. It's not my job. I'm not senior enough to express how I think or how I feel. And nobody asked me. So I'll just keep to myself, right? That's what we're taught. And that is what's fundamental to the culture. So then in running a business, how do you change that? How do you make it so that people feel like, I want to express myself? It's not that Asians don't want to express themselves. They actually feel that I can't. It's not my place, right? I don't want to cause my senior to lose face. I don't want to express myself when it's not my role. It's not my place to do that. And I can see you, Sarah, I can see you smiling because you're identifying with these things. So then how do you create a culture within the organization that people are willing to say, oh, it's a safe place for me to express myself, regardless of my position in the organization. I know that the senior management or the other people on my team will listen to me. And that's what we set about to try to create inside of Kaidi and spend a lot of years and very focused years on how to create that environment. I mean, you know, the goal was clear. You wanted to create an open collaborative culture and surely that's important. I struggle sometimes in that, you know, we think Silicon Valley is the best. It's created some failures and some really as well in terms of culture. So I don't think it, it should be a cut, copy and paste, but certainly certain elements like, you know, being willing to speak up, being able to be open with your ideas, pushes for creativity and competitiveness, um, things like that. I think those are all good things. How do you do that, you know, tactically? How do you ensure, you know, I think the classic thing in Silicon Valley that's made it successful is that failure is celebrated somewhat. Um, It's just, or if not celebrated, you know, it's part of the process, right? It's not going to define you. There's there's none of this saving face, right, which you were talking about, which is very core to Asia. How how did you tactically implement that in Kaidi? So you actually touched on a really important point is embracing failure. I, I think, and actually, this is not just true for Asia. This is true for the United States as well. People say, oh, we embrace failure. But do you really? Do you really? Are you willing to accept when a project fails? And, and let me explain the difference between, let's say, Sarah, you have a project with me. And there's two ways I can approach this. The project's not going well. The project's not going to work out. And people say, oh, we embrace failure. But how do we approach it when we talk to Sarah about it? And so there's two approaches. One approach is, well, why am I just hearing about this now? Why didn't you come talk to me earlier? Well, why did you do it that way? Well, why didn't you do it this way? I can't believe that you just did it this way and you, and it's turning out like this now and we're going to fail and oh my gosh, this is, this is a terrible outcome. Okay, I'm embracing failure. Okay, so what are we going to do next? That's one way to approach it. And people say, I'm accepting failure. There's another way. Sarah, you come to me and you say, see what this, this, this project's not working out. Am I listening to you? Okay, let's talk about it, Sarah. What happened? Why do you think it failed? Why do you think it's not going to go forward? What can we learn from it? And how do we move differently? And you can see the difference in the words that are used is in the approach of saying, will you be open to tell me about it rather than me attacking you, making you feel bad about it? And I think these are the key things to get the team, and this is not just a typing, of getting them to feel open to talk about the failures. We embrace failures, but do we? 
are you really truly willing to say, it's all right, yeah, it failed, okay, let's move on. And as managers, as leaders, I think this was a big change for me to be able to hear my team and listen to my team to say, all right, tell me about it. Of course, I'm disappointed with the outcome. I don't want it to be like this, but it's reality. Now let's learn from it. Let's hear about it and move on and then help the person to feel comfortable to say, yeah, it didn't work out the way we planned. I'm just going to tell you about it. It failed. And I actually think that, you know, the whole idea of where failure is embraced, I think it's embraced from the entrepreneurial side, but is it really embraced from your team? Can you really allow your team to fail and really embrace that and say, understand, it's okay, not the way we expected it to be, but we'll work on it for the next time. And I think the key point that I would like to make and what I learned along the way was the difference between a working group and the way we were taught to work versus how a sports team is taught to play as a team. And I think this was my big learning was we're Mm -hmm. taught in the working environment, which, oh my gosh, this project failed. I'm going to talk about it and say why. And you got to tell me rather than a sports team, they lose on Sunday. Guess what? They wake up Monday, they start practicing together and working on the following, the next game and learning from it and then fixing things to make sure they win in the next game. But we don't actually do that as businesses or as Mm -hmm. managers or leaders. And I think these are the areas that I started to work on in Thailand of A, listening to the team and then really allowing them to feel free to say, yeah, it didn't work out, boss. Sorry. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know that they didn't intend for that either. Right. Yeah, I love that. I mean, the fact that you call yourself head coach all makes sense, you know, in terms of thinking about yourself as, as teams versus um, and, and I know you make a distinction between teams and working groups as well. Yeah. So the head coach thing came about. I was inspired by a gentleman by the name of Patty Upton. He's a cricket mm. coach. I had the honor and pleasure to hear him speak in December of 2013. He changed my life. When I came home back to Thailand, I was in South Africa listening to him. And he's a South African. And I came back to Thailand. And I changed my title from CEO to head coach. And, and the reason I did that was I wanted to change the perspective of my team about what I do. And the reality is that CEO is about my ego. And egos don't win games. My ego is not going to win a game. My team's going to win games. And that was the big shift for me. And by the way, I like being called CEO or managing director or whatever you founder. I enjoy, I, I like it. But that's about me. It's not about my team. It's not about my business and my employees that are going to actually make this business run. And I have a role to play. And that role is, if you think about it, if you're, um, for the listeners, whether you're into um, football, soccer, or American football, it doesn't matter the sport, you'll notice the manager and the coach actually is on the sidelines during game time. Mm. The 90 minutes that is played every Sunday by the Premier League, the players on the field, the managers not. But the other 30 hours a week prior to that game day, the coach is on the field with the players and prepping them. And what's funny about running businesses is that you think about a football team, they spend 30 hours a week preparing to play 90 minutes. We as businesses spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week playing on the field, but never preparing for it. Yeah. And it's, it's a massive shift in how we, 
we look at our teams, and this is where we talk about working groups versus a team. A team is we come together and we know each player in the position that they play on the field. But when we're a working group, we expect to be responsible for my tasks. I'm going to get my tasks done. And when the project fails, wasn't my problem. They didn't finish their tasks. And we point the finger. So if you think about it, we're talking about Premier League. If I'm, if I'm playing for Liverpool, I'm the striker on the field. If I actually behave the way we behave in business on the field while playing, it would never work. And here's the example. I'm the striker. My job is to kick the ball towards the net. I wait for the midfield to send me the ball. And when it's sent to me, I will kick it towards the goal. Now, if I behave the way we behave in business, I say, I just got my job done. I kicked it towards the goal. I'm going to stand here and wait until the midfield sends me the ball again. Yeah. Would that team ever win? Hell no. But that's the way we actually expect business to work. In sports, that role of striker knows mm. that's just my role when we practice and when a, when a play is made on the field. But guess what? I can play midfield. I will play defender. I will play goalie. I will play whatever role you want as long as we win. Mm. And this is the thing that we tried to change inside of Kaidi, which was it's not about just your role and doing your role right. It's about we win as a team. So just because you did your job well doesn't mean anything if we still lose the game. If you lose the game, <laughs> there didn't matter what happened. And yeah. I think this is the, the things that I started to transition, particularly in 2013, 2014, to understand that it wasn't about the person's performance. It's about the whole group's performance and how do we play as a team instead of looking at KPIs. And, you know, KPIs is a weird, globally, it's a weird terminology that people use. And people seem to forget that it's a key performance indicator. It's just an indicator. It's not the goal. And yeah. people forget this. It's, but we expect it. And your team, you set KPIs and they think, well, if I achieve my KPIs, I've done my job. Well, no, you still missed the goal. And that's in this example of strikers go, hey, I shot the ball 10 times on goal. Okay, but we still lost the game. Does it matter? It didn't matter. Didn't matter how my stats dealt with while I was on the field and I played my role, if we still lost the game, I think this is missing in yeah. managers' heads because we expect that you are responsible for your performance. Mm. But in reality, a team works as, I'm responsible for my performance, but I still want to make sure that Sarah is performing as well. And how can I help her do that? And we do it together. And Sarah's worried about not just my performance, but us as a team to make sure that we kick it in the goal and we win the game. And it's a, it's yeah. a big mind shift. All right, ladies and gents, there you have it. This week's Billion Dollar Bite. Let me know what you think. If something resonated with you, if you had a question that is yet to be answered, topic to be covered, DMs are open on Search and Global on Instagram. And if you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate it if you leave me a review and share this on social media with your friends so we can grow our community at Billion Dollar Moves that has been growing exponentially. Thank you so, so much. You can't imagine how grateful I am. And on that note, 
I'd like to use this end of the episode to say a special thank you to so many of you who showed up for me in the last couple of weeks. Michelle Walker for the amazing review, Juliana Chan, Yueto Zola, Paul, Yan Amri, Mohadese, Amira Aisha, Noah, Vibin, Nagi, and yes, special mention to Dr. Ritesh Malik, my partner in crime for my presentation, our presentation at the annual meeting of new champions in China recently. In the meantime, everyone, keep making billion dollar moves. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings, and see you again next week. Thank you.